0: Hey there. I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's Time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. How's it going? I know I say I'm excited to interview a lot of my guests on Time for Coffee, but this one falls into a special category. That's because my next guest, is so unique and has had such an unconventional path in his professional life, let alone in his personal life. And he's such a bright, interesting, and just all-around wonderful human being that I've been counting down the minutes until I'd have a chance to interview him. And let me say this. If you're a fan of the show, American Ninja Warrior, this young man was The first American Ninja Warrior to get to the third stage when he was only 24 years old. And if you like parkour, this young man is a legend in the sport. And if you think a college degree is not for you, this young man has proven that you can still build an amazing, fulfilling professional and personal life without one. How's that for a tease? And if you haven't signed up for the Time for Coffee weekly newsletter, that's the Java Junkies Journal, then please head on over to Time for Coffee. That's time, the number four, coffee.org and sign up. So you can get a heads up on the five episodes we're going to be dropping that week. So it is that time, my friends, grab your mug and take a chug because boy, are you going to need that extra jolt of caffeine to keep up with this young man because it is time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my esteemed guest on this episode of Time for Coffee is none other than Levi Muenberg, who is a web developer and a permaculture homestead owner in Michigan. He's also a former professional freerunner, stuntman, and Sasuke competitor. Levi, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go?
1: I'm ready to go. It's you know, kind of evening time right now. So I try to lay off the coffee. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. And we should tell Java junkies that you and I know one another because you have been my web developer. And thanks to you and your team at Hog the Web, you got the Time for Coffee website off the ground this summer. And you have also been my go-to resource for pretty much anything technical. And you were the one who trained me to edit the T4C episodes on Adobe Audition. I don't know what I would have done without you.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm just so happy to, uh, to be a part of it and to help you out. And then, you know, now that we've launched it, to just see how great it's going and see all this wonderful content and, and these great interviews that you're doing.
0: Well, and I should also say that I only discovered like a month ago, all this Other stuff, your, you know, your parkour life, your American Ninja Warrior life, this is not something that you ever raised with me. And as I was getting ready for this interview, Levi, I decided to do things a little differently. And since Uh you're used to the world of flips and twists and turns, rather than starting with where you are now in your professional life, the way that I do with most of the time for coffee interviews, I thought we could start with how your personal journey began, maybe back in high school, when you began doing parkour for fun, and you were also playing around with computers on the side.
1: Yeah. So actually those two paths were a little bit converging even from the beginning. So, I mean, I always found computers very interesting, even from a very young age. And I had a very good friend um, who was a little bit further, more experienced with them than me. So he taught me a lot and it was all just kind of for fun. You know, we'd we'd like make stupid little games and make funny little video rec- or uh, audio recordings and, you know, just, just kind of tinker around with them. And then what we would also do is play video games. And at that time, you couldn't just connect your computers over the internet and play video games over the internet because the internet was too slow. This was like dial-up times. <laughs> so what we would do is we'd all take our computers, which were humongous at the time, you know, these are giant CRT monitors, a big desktop, you know, keyboard, mouse, all that. We'd load them in our cars. We'd all go to one person's house and we'd have what we call a LAN party, which LAN just stands for local area network. So we'd network all of our computers and we'd play video games together. But that was, you know, another great learning experience also just on how computers work and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. At one of those land parties, um, a friend of mine showed me a video of, of this guy doing all these amazing acrobatics outdoors. Um, his name was Joe Igo. And it just blew my mind. I mean, this was like just after the Matrix had come out. And, you know, the Matrix was, of course, super awesome to me at the time, and just how they would run up walls and do flips and so forth. So this guy was like a a real guy doing kind of like matrix moves in real life. And for some reason, I just felt like, wow, I feel like I could do that. And so I just called up the local gymnastics gym and was like, hey, can I just come in and like try some stuff? And, uh, and they're like, yeah, sure, that we have open gym. So I started going to the local gymnastics gym and uh, Water's Edge Gymnastics here in Traverse City, um, where I grew up. And the coaches were just super awesome and helpful and just. You know, I would kind of like come up with whatever some crazy stunt or trick I wanted to learn, like a front flip or flipping off a wall or something. And they would they teach me how to do it. And I, I guess I had a knack for it because it all came really quickly and easily. And so how that's, old that's were you? Start actually, I was about seventeen. So I mean, I'm sort of compressing the story. You know, some of that stuff was earlier, but. I would mm-hmm. say when I really got into parkour, I was 17 and, and really started to get serious with my training and just going to the gymnastics gym and also, you know, met some other people in town who were into parkour uh, and free running. And so we would just train together and, and make videos of ourselves. And, and that's really how my whole parkour career uh, took off or stunt. What turned into a stunt career was that um, we, would, we would film videos and my, and my friend would edit them and then we'd publish them online. And so, you know, some of my videos got some quite a number of views and got some attention. And I mean, it's kind of a long story. But, you know, ultimately, through this professional team that a friend of mine put together called American Parkour, we started getting offers from all kinds of different companies to do parkour performances or shows or do, you know, parkour for their commercial or something. And just all these opportunities started coming. It was just kind of incredible. That was about the time. So, So in terms of college, so I I started getting into parkour, you know, and just trained it for a few years. And so I was starting to go to the local college uh, here in Travers. Um, And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Actually, my first declared major was music composition. Mm -hmm. Um, I really enjoyed music theory, playing the piano and then composing my own songs. But after I started taking those college classes, I pretty soon discovered that, you know, those are oriented towards people who are going to do it professionally. So they're going to be just cranking out song after song after song for like on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. And I quickly discovered that for me, music is is more a way that I express myself. It's something I need to be inspired to create. You know, I can't just turn it out.
0: So was that so, Northwestern Michigan College? Mm hmm. OK. How did that work? You went to... Northwestern Michigan, and then eventually you transferred to the University of Michigan.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's kind of a funny story. So one of the very first huge opportunities that came through the parkour stuff was um, the Madonna's Confessions tour in 2006 they she had, she wanted to feature Parkour in her live show, her world tour. And just kind of through some people that I knew through you know the professional team they ended up contacting me and saying, hey, do you want to come out and be a part of this? And uh, of course, I was like, yes, <laughs> I'll do that. That sounds awesome. And I think I was 19 at that time. So, so I was super naive. This is, you know, I was thrown into this world tour. It was a six-month tour. We traveled just about everywhere. You know, all people I didn't know. And this is like the height of the entertainment industry. You know, there's there's no such thing as a, a budget, you know, for this scale of, of a production. So it was just like kind of being thrown in at the deep end. Um, but fortunately, I had some good friends or I, I made some good friends on the tour and had a really positive experience. But after the tour, I just came back to Travers and I was like, OK, well, what do I do now? <laughs> right. um, it's not it's not like I had tons of work coming in where I could just sort of take off and do that. And so there's a period. Actually, I worked at just a local video store for like a few months after the Madonna tour. Oh, my gosh. And then uh, and then I applied for U of M. Uh, to transfer my credits. And uh, the the funniest thing is that Madonna is actually from, um, she actually went to U of M and she's from Michigan. Oh, really? So we kind of had like a little bit of that in common. And also her parents live basically here in Traverse City. Out of the blue, I just kind of asked her people, you know, hey, you know, would you mind writing me a letter of recommendation for U of M? And believe it or not, she wrote a letter of recommendation for me. Wow. So <laughs> I think that probably helped me get in. But at that time, uh, my, my major, again, I was still uncertain, but I, I declared philosophy as my major at that time, just because I've always been fascinated by philosophy and some of the the bigger questions that, that people have always been grappling with. So that takes me to college. But then while I was at U of M, I was only there for like one semester before uh, the work, more work started coming in. And so then I was traveling back and forth between Ann Arbor and LA a lot because uh, a lot of the productions going on out there. And then also other places you know, where these productions and things were happening Um, and eventually just just decided this this seems like a great opportunity. This seems like there's a potential here for something long term. So I already had some great friends out in L.A., Team Tempest. So I moved out to L.A. and just got really busy doing work. And so basically, you know, did stunts and parkour professionally for probably a good five, six years.
0: And I mean, (laughs) your list of shows and films that you did, you were in The Avengers,
1: Yep. I uh, doubled Captain America for like a brief moment.
0: <laughs> so cool. The Bourne Legacy.
1: Yep. I was doubling uh, Jeremy Renner, the lead, lead role in that one.
0: You were also on TV programs on Chuck. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the whole Ninja Warrior, mm-hmm. the American Ninja Warrior, which I guess started with Sasuke. Mm-hmm. How did you get into that?
1: Yeah. So that was just something, you know, at the time... Sasuke, um, what we what's now called American Ninja Warrior, was a Japanese television show that the American television channel G4, which is the gaming channel, they would air and broadcast. And then they just started sending a few Americans. So there's always 100 contestants. But G4 started to send just like a handful of Americans each year. Um, it's just one, I think it's just one per year. I think they changed it to two eventually. But yeah, so I, you know, I submitted a, a video and you know, my video got chosen just because of all the cool parkour stuff I can do. And uh, and so then I went, we did like tryouts in L.A. And then I was uh, I, I succeeded at the tryouts. And, and funny enough, one of my other friends, Brian Orozco, a parkour guy, also did this at the same time as me. And we were in the tryout together and we both succeeded. And, and we were it was the two of us going to Japan to be oh. the American. I think there was also an, another American, too. Um, so I think they took three that time you know went to Japan and so this course y- you only get one chance at it so you don't get to like practice anything or try anything like the first time you run it is the last time for that year and they they change it slightly from year to year but basically the first time I went I just had a really great run and ended up getting all the way to third stage there's four total stages and the last stage is like it's just a huge tower you have to climb before that uh, no American had made it past the first stage so that was uh you know that was something, I guess. And uh, they invited G4 kept inviting me back year after year. So I ended up doing it a number of times, but uh, still was never able to beat stage three.
0: Oh, man, I, I did some reading on the internet. And I think they were speculating that it may have been the jet lag and some other things that held you back or kind of sapped you of that extra energy. Do you think that may have
1: been it? Well, basically, uh, stages one and two are very much about like running and jumping. So it's very much like parkour, but then stage three is almost exclusively hanging by your hands and climbing on things with just your hands. So it's much more like rock climbing. And so I didn't really do a lot of rock climbing. I mean, I had decent grip strength, but I didn't have like a rock climbers grip strength and that takes a long time to develop. So, you know, I did practice. I went to rock climbing gyms and tried to improve, but, uh. It's just not something that I had spent years doing. You know, most of the people who beat stage three, which there's very few of, tend to be people who've done rock climbing or something similar for many years to to train that grip strength.
0: Yeah. Before we move into your life after parkour, could you share with Java junkies who may not be as familiar with it what it is about the sport that is so captivating and what it was about it that held you in its grip for so many years.
1: Yeah, I mean there's so many good things to say about it and um I ha- highly recommend anyone who's uh interested in like learning parkour or getting into it uh check out americanparkour.com. Um there's really good training information there, but basically so the idea of parkour is that it's how to get from point A to point B in the most efficient fastest way possible using just your body and, you know, sneakers. Typically, is done in an urban environment just because there's more obstacles and so it's more fun. Mm-hmm. You know, so so you're training all these different techniques to to climb over, under, and through different obstacles, be they bars, rails, you know, walls, buildings, you know, anything like that. But then also, a lot of people who do parkour they like to throw in different stylistic elements for fun, like like flips and gymnastics and acrobatics. And uh, and that was something that I particularly enjoyed and, and had fun. So for me, it was more. It wasn't strictly about efficiency. It was more like just having fun. Is kind of like a, I guess it's kind of like a, a roller coaster ride, except you're the one <laughs> in charge of yes. of taking it. Uh, you know, directing it. It's just so amazing how you can just run and jump and and just like fly over these obstacles so fast and and so confidently and and it just feels like nothing can stop you and and you can pretty much do anything. I mean, it. You know, you look at it and it kind of looks like what superheroes do, and it looks like you know, kind of how superheroes move in in the movies. And so I think that really excited me, too, that we're sort of like real life superheroes in a way.
0: (laughs) Yes. And I'll tell you what, if anyone wants to check out Levi, and we'll include it in the show notes, the videos that show you doing your thing. I mean, these things are super dangerous. I can't even imagine how many hours of practice you had to put in to make it look so effortless.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of training. But the thing is that to train was is fun. Like it's all just especially when you have good friends. I mean, that's another amazing part about parkour and free running is there's this really tight knit community of people who practice it and train like seriously. Um, and we do like jams in different cities throughout the year where, you know, maybe a 100 or more people get together and just train parkour together. So it's just this really solid knit of like super great people and and like all the people I've met through parkour like just the best human beings like they're just super nice and kind and dedicated and like very helpful and
0: But you reached a point and how old were you when you became disillusioned with the life of a professional parkour stuntman right
1: yeah, I think I was probably about twenty-seven or so at that time. Yeah, that's that's right.
0: Okay, and you had been using your computer skills all that while doing promotions for you and your team, and websites, and videos, and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never did it professionally, but you know, just always part of promoting your team or whatever is to create a website and make videos. So you know, I was I was always tinkering with computer stuff. All, all along the way, and especially teaching myself uh, web design.
0: And so how did you make the transition from professional parkour stuntman into the world of permaculture, which I'm going to need you to explain, mm-hmm. and the web?
1: Yeah, it, it was a rough transition. I'll say that. It, it was basically when I was working on The Born Legacy in Manila, which is uh, in the, the capital of the Philippines. There were many, many different things going on in my life and in my in my mind at the time that I was starting to feel disillusioned. Not with parkour. I, I love parkour always. More, more so the professional aspect of the entertainment business and stunts. And I just felt like, especially seeing all the poverty that was that was happening in Manila and seeing all the corruption and also the pollution. I mean, all the rivers were just filled with, just looked really bad, basically. And and it was just really sad and, and kind of jarred me and made me think like, what am I doing here? Like, I'm, I'm here in this place where all these people are suffering and, and living in kind of squalor in a way. But being part of this production, they just put us up in the fancy business hotels. And and we don't really, other than just like, you know, using their buildings and using their scenery and, and hiring some locals, there's not a whole lot of beneficial things we're doing to help these people in this country. And really, ultimately, what are we doing? We're, we're creating some amusement for people who don't have those problems. And it, you know, it doesn't seem like it had much depth, I guess, to it. You know, mm-hmm. it's you know, some movies are really amazing and can tr- can transform people's lives. And but. You know, I I didn't personally feel like what I was putting my time and energy into was something of really lasting value that that was going to impact people in a positive way. Mm -hmm. And because I'm doing stunts, um, you know, I'm literally putting my life on the line for the sake of these productions. So, you know, all these things and many more sort of came together in my mind and, and helped me to realize, like, I don't think this is the best use of my skills and of my time I think there's a lot more that I can do that maybe many other people don't have the opportunity or potential um, to do just, just because of my, my background and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt uh, a responsibility too. And especially when I studied about climate change and really came to understand the, the gravity of the situation and how thorough of a transformation of basically everything that all the ways we go about our daily life in order to to really solve the climate change issue, it's gonna require almost a complete transformation of of how we go about our daily lives, about how our systems work, how our governments work. Just because we're so, so dependent on burning fossil fuels and that fossil energy, you know, our food systems, our water systems, our transportation systems, of course. I mean, it's just a really complex problem and, and, and really challenging and pretty scary, you know, to be honest, too. And I've always had, you know, the natural world has always been very important to me you know almost sacred even though I'm, I'm not religious but there you know if something is sacred it's something that's more important beyond yourself so you know I feel like I have a responsibility being being born from the natural world like we all are to you know kind of look out for for it and, and care about it and and see what can be done what solutions are out there to change the impacts that we're having on it and and figure out a way we, we can coexist.
0: So, how does permaculture do that?
1: What I love about permaculture, when I discovered it, is that it actually provides solutions. It provides a path forward. It shows us a way that we, that humans, can live on the Earth in a way that isn't hurting the Earth or hurting the ecosystems, but actually helping and healing um, the the land around us. And you know, there's there's many permaculture comes from Australia. Or it was it was coined in Australia, but it's really a combination of many different uh, like wise traditions of working with the land that are very ancient from many different cultures all around the world and and the thing is that there's no one solution it's not like this is the way of farming that everyone should do because it should be different based on your geography based on your climate based on the wildlife and the animals that coexist you know in your in your region so it's going to be different from place to place but it's going to be specific to the, the biology or, or the, the biosystems of your local area. So looking at wild foods, native foods, and then looking at how we can meet all those basic human needs, because you know we have to eat, we have to be warm in the winter, you know, if if we're going to exist at all. So how can we meet those needs in a way that is also allowing the the local natural systems to sustain themselves or even improve in health? So there, you know, it's a collection of all these different, both ancient traditions, but also uh, new research that's being done. Uh, for example, out of the Rodale Institute for perennial agriculture, using tree crops rather than annual grains and so forth, they help stabilize the soil. So there's there's a lot of work that's being done, and it's really exciting. And a lot of solutions that are out there already. You know, now that I've been studying it for a number of years and, and putting it into practice and so forth, you know, it's totally doable. Like we have all the tools we need to basically solve climate change and also also live a very comfortable, very happy, very abundant life like like everyone can, even with however many billion people are, we, we have on the planet now. It's totally doable, but it's just about changing our practices and changing our, our beliefs and our way of life.
0: So let me ask you, Levi, you quit the stunt world. You moved back to Traverse City in Michigan. How did you get going in permaculture and how did you get your web business up and going i know it was
1: not easy yeah i mean starting a farm or, or running a farm especially when you don't have that like in your blood you didn't grow up um in that way of life it's it's very humbling there's so many different skill sets that you need to have you know both there's construction and there's plumbing and then there's gardening of course and then there's Animal husbandry or raising livestock. There's breeding, so there's so much knowledge. There's so many different skills, and and of course the tools that are associated with those skills. So it's like a huge thing, actually. It's a huge steep learning curve to to learn how to do this and even provide some of your needs yourself from the land you're on. And so yeah, it was it was pretty rough, but I'm I'm very blessed because um I live on a an old thirty acre farm that was my great grandfather's, um wow. and I grew up here, and my parents now live here too. And it's it's no longer in production, like it wasn't even a farm when, when I was a kid, but I felt called to be home and I came home and fortunately my dad is like this, he's like a, a jack of all trades kind of person where he was a professional builder by trade. Um, but of course, when you're a builder, you also have to do so many other skills, you know, electric, electrical, plumbing, so much. And he also is a big sportsman. So he does hunting and fishing too. Yeah. In the early years, a a lot I was learning from my dad and just, it's been really special for me and I'm I'm really grateful that I did come back because he he tried to teach me some of those things, you know, when I was a kid, but I didn't, I think I was too young and I didn't maybe really care as much and didn't think about the value of it. I'm really grateful to, to be able to have that opportunity and also have this wonderful land that was being unused that I could just kind of move on to and start seeing what I could do to repair it and also provide some of uh, of my own needs.
0: So you moved back home, you moved on to your family's farm, and your dad started teaching you some of this. And I'm guessing you also were tapping into whatever savings you had at that point to help pay some of your bills, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And And also, you know, starting on a bare piece of land, there's a lot of infrastructure that you have to put in. Even if it's like very simple DIY structures, there's still a lot of costs. You know, you can't do too much without power. So we had to trench a line, you know, water power, put some hydrants in, put up fencing. We eventually put up a hoop house and uh, put a little camper here with a porch to live in and so forth. But yeah, in terms of the money thing, so when I was first also getting started, I was also talking to a lot of local farmers and and. They also provided a huge amount of of great input and insight. Uh, local small farmers, like organic farmers, and so forth. And one of them came over to the land here, and he was—he's a big pig farmer in the area. A good friend of mine, Mark Baker, and uh, I was like, "What do you What do you think, Mark? What What should I do with this this land here? We have about four acres of open land, mm-hmm. but you know, you can definitely do something significant. But the land itself was very poor soil, so you know, you could there's only like a few little brambly kind of plants and you could see a lot of dirt in between the plants. It wasn't like lush grass. It was (laughs) weedy, sparse, desolate. And so his first response was, you need to get pigs. Well, okay, yeah, you're a pig farmer. So of course you're going to say that. (laughs) But really it was true. So um, because pigs, they actually help revitalize the soil and um especially if you if you're rotating them and moving them around um on different patches of land and not letting them be in any one spot too long well yeah if you do it right yeah it's called mob grazing this is something that Joel Salatin some people might have heard of Joel Salatin he's like kind of like a superstar farmer um he was in the book Omnivore's Dilemma which was like this huge thing oh yeah um but basically you know there's this huge movement now that's all about mob grazing where you're you're moving the animals literally every day or even multiple times a day at least grazing animals the pigs we didn't move so often because they're not eating grass we had to still feed them but just to have the correct amount of impact you have to like watch what's going on with the land and the plants and keep moving them and we use portable electric fencing to do this so you know I started out just with two pigs because I you know didn't know what I was doing and <laughs> didn't want to jump into anything huge but uh, it went super well we we loved it. Of course, we got, you know, with just two pigs, you can essentially feed yourself all the meat you want for your whole year. So, you know, we were good in that front, too. Year by year, I would scale up. At one time, we had about 16 pigs. We were breeding pigs. We had two moms or two sows and a boar, and they would give birth and have litters. And, you know, so we were like, I was like pretty far into it. And we were also selling pork to a local restaurant. Great. So I was really trying to make, you know, make a living and make it work as a business, make the farm work as a business because, you know, it's already what I want to be doing. It's what I believe in. um, So why not? But I, I really struggled to scale it up to the point where it could provide for like a real income type of a job. But basically, you know, I, I finally realized like, okay, I got to do something else. To pay the bills, you know, I was just looking at some different ideas and thinking, well, man, it'd be great if I could work from home. Do something where I could work from home because then I could still be here to watch the animals and and manage what's going on here at the farm um, while I'm I'm paying helping to pay my bills too. You know, working with my wife, she we eventually came up with the idea. You know, why not web design? You know, I built all these sites. I could just like put them into a portfolio and try to do that for people as a as a gig and that's when I, I discovered Upwork, which is um, it's like a freelance website. It, you just It's kind of like Airbnb in a way where each freelancer has a profile and they get reviewed by their previous clients. And then other people can go and see the score and the reviews of previous clients. So if you just do a really good job, then of course you get good reviews and it just turns into more work.
0: And what I love about that, Levi, and you and I had chatted not long ago about how you approached building your web business, which is called, by the way, Hog the Web. We all Mm -hmm. now understand why, but how (laughs) you used your parkour approach to building your knowledge of becoming an expert in web design. Could you share that with Java junkies?
1: Yeah. So when I trained parkour, there's a specific approach and a specific mindset when you're approaching a new obstacle, for instance, or a new trick. I want to learn a new trick. You know, first of all, I need to first understand the mechanics of it. So maybe I'll watch videos of other people doing it and pay close attention to like how they're moving their different limbs and the timing of it all. And then, you know, I have to find like a, a way to set that up, usually in a, in the gym with like mats and so forth, where I can try it. And, and, um, and it's a safe place where I can fail and not get hurt. Then you might just... Try it a few times in a in a kind of a, a slow jog or, or sort of pantomime it, just to again start to ingrain it in your body memory and your muscle memory. You know, visualization helps a lot, um, and then eventually you just start trying it over and over and over again, and uh, and it just takes you know hundreds and hundreds of of attempts and also uh, many many days going in and practicing before you can eventually uh, nail it or land it. Let alone land it consistently, where you could go do it outside and be confident that you can land it no matter what. And that's kind of the same approach I took to farming and building the farm and also to building Hog the Web as a business. Before Hog the Web, I actually did attempt a number of other to start a number of other businesses besides the parkour thing. I did have a number of, of failed business attempts too, just like all these different a- attempting, you know, this move all these different times. So I, you know, I eventually found out what worked. But I do think too that the farming helped me be better at uh, web design because, like I said, it's super, super humbling. Like whatever mistakes you make, you witness the consequences. There's no, there's no hiding. There's no pretending. You know, you can't BS your way through it. It's just total. It's totally just about action and reaction and knowing the right knowledge, applying it at the right time. Just how to get things done, how to be productive, how how to stay focused how to really fine tune something, you know, when to just stay big picture, when to zoom in on different details and fix little pieces. So, you know, there's just a lot that I was learning that applied from both parkour and from farming that, that helped with the success of Hog the Web.
0: Something that I only discovered as I was preparing to interview you, Levi, is that you view Hog the Web as a social enterprise. And for Java junkies who may not know what a social enterprise is, that means it's about a social good. That's the focus of your company. There's a greater good, and your greater good is funding the ecological restoration work that you're doing on your farm and the life that you're building, Levi, which I think is just such an interesting and really admirable way of living your life.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it better become the, you know, the paradigm or the, the way things are done the mainstream pretty soon, you know, if we if we want to keep enjoying this world. The whole idea of starting Hog the Web, of course I want to deliver a, a wonderful, great service and product to, to people, but part of the, the goal was that I was able to, to fund, you know, these other projects that I'm doing here on the farm and in the local community. You know, we've we've planted Tons of trees. You know, we planted uh, some. Me and friends here have planted some food forests at some local schools through a local nonprofit called Seeds, and we've planted some public forest gardens, which are just like multi-layered orchards, you could say, that have they're diverse and productive on many different layers. You got nut trees, fruit trees, berry bushes, um, herbaceous plants, all all different sorts that comprise sort of an edible ecosystem. So we we planted a lot of these, and then of course the pasture uh, here on the farm, we've been where we continue to restore by doing the mob grazing and rotational grazing with uh, with pigs and chickens. Um, eventually, we'll get cows. Now that the pasture is mostly restored, we're actually thinking we can actually support cows, which is pretty cool. So we can support now a grass-eating animal because of this restoration work we, that we did with the pigs. The results are, are clear to see, and it's not just here. There's many different other farms and other research projects where they have huge success in terms of actually Restoring and improving the biodiversity, improving the soil, and building up the local ecology where it was once damaged. Because, you know, being an old farm, at one point, all the trees were cut down and it was rototilled many, many times. And maybe they sprayed some stuff on it. I don't know. Um, You know, that's how things were done at the time. But the land needs a lot of healing. We know ways to do that. We have ways to do that. And they're not expensive, they're not super technological. They're not something that only an expert can do. They're, they're widely accessible. You can provide for your own needs at the same time while you're doing this type of restoration work. And it's fun, especially if you do it with friends. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So- yeah, so Hog the web. I I love doing it. There's also just a pure enjoyment in in doing web design because it's a lot of puzzles, you know, solving little little glitches or 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 figuring out how to to accomplish something, get something working on a website. There's also sort of an intellectual enjoyment of it to me as well. Um, and I just love helping people like you and and just seeing what comes of all these little creations. But yeah, there's also a bigger purpose as well, and and that's um, so that's part of what has inspired Hog the web.
0: And Levi as if that weren't enough, I think your kind of personal ethos is something that I have not heard others outside of a religious organization talk about. Could you share with us some of your philosophy about wanting to move beyond the narrative of personal success into more of a community-based thinking about the way that we live our lives?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So, you know, when I was growing up, when I was in school in our traditional education system here in the United States, the question that kept getting asked of me is, you know, what what do you want to do with your life? You know, or in the first person, what should I do with my life? And this question, it just keeps getting repeated and repeated. And, and so, of course, you start to embody that, that puzzle. But part of this sort of a, uh, transformation that took place for me in my 20s was that I was realizing that there are bigger questions or more important questions that maybe we should be asking ourselves and they involve other people and other species as well. Because when you say, what should I do with my life? I mean, you could be interpret that many different ways, but the focus is mainly on yourself and your wants and your desires maybe or, or your aspirations. What I was not taught that I eventually had to learn was that there's a wider world out there and it's not just static, it's a complex world, and many things are constantly changing. There's these enormous systems that we're part of and we're engaged in. And you know, just by engaging in them, because we're dependent upon them, like the food system again and the transportation system or, or other systems, belief systems as well, part of the, this culture that we live in, we're contributing and reinforcing those patterns of behavior and thought. So the question that I eventually started realizing or feeling was a more important question was, what should we do with our world? And our doesn't mean just us humans. It's not our world, but of course, all of life. Because that question makes you think more about the bigger picture. It makes you think about your place in something greater than yourself. It's not just about me. What can I get from the world, so to speak? um, But what can I give to the world?
0: And there's more to that, Levi, because something that really struck me about Some of what I know about your philosophy is that the way you define your success is not about how big you're going to grow hog the web, how much money you're going to make in your business. And part of that is because of the toll that it would take on your life and that your definition of success is about much more than that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, another one of these little um, biases or or built-in programming that that I absorbed from um, our our traditional education system um, is this idea of success and that that's like the ultimate goal, I guess. And, you know, people have different visions of that, but essentially it's, you could say it's the American dream in a way. But the idea of success that I absorbed was, again, focused mostly on personal or at least immediate family um, gains and, and improvements. And and sometimes actually if you're so driven towards success in monetary terms or in professional terms, you might actually sacrifice some of the more important things, such again as family or or your local community and, and things that are going on locally if you're if you're chasing this idea of success. And I just I guess I just felt like I wanted something more meaningful or that maybe we should search for something more meaningful or maybe that we already have it too. I mean, there's, you know, another another one of these absorbed beliefs or patterns that I picked up on and had to unlearn <laughs> was that there's sort of this pervasive feeling that the real good stuff is yet to come, that, you know, we're not quite good enough yet, you know, just wait until that, that goal or that achievement. And I wasn't really taught the art of contentment and, and gratitude and just being grateful with what you have and and what's here now and and really appreciating it because that i mean i think that's how you can be happy you know i think that's just the path to happiness for for humans it's not necessarily just personal or professional achievement but finding something meaningful
0: yes and you know something that i do with all my guests is i ask a variety of questions and encourage them to help me guide them through a conversation. And I want to read to Java Junkie something that you wrote, Levi, about how you define success because it's really beautiful. You define it by how many people do you love and are you loved by? How many can depend on you in an emergency getting a flat tire needing to be taken to the hospital or to rehab? Are you a trustworthy neighbor helping to watch their pets while they take a vacation? And that success to you is being an engaged citizen in your local politics. It means being a DIY home scientist and taking the time to to express yourself through music, art, and dance. In essence, you say, being a whole human being. I think what you're modeling for Java junkies, and I know that there are many others who are part of the permaculture movement who most likely would subscribe to similar values, is really kind of a taking us back maybe a couple of hundred years.
1: Yeah, but it really, it's the only way forward too. So I don't think we have to, you know, let go of everything, like all technology or anything like that. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful tools and knowledge that we have in science, but it's just the excess. There's just a lot of excess in our culture. Of course, you know, coming back to the the stunts and the the movie industry, at least at the scale that it's at, you know, instead of watching some Hollywood movie, which of course (laughs) we watch a lot of and I enjoy, but you know, just imagine instead going to your local theater and and watching, uh, you know, just your people that, you know, putting on a play and telling an amazing story. So it's just a matter of perspective and um, finding ways to meet your need, our needs in a way that we can still enjoy, but maybe just aren't as um, excessive.
0: (laughs) Well, I think so much of your values and your mindset and the life that you and Brenda are living comes through. Because even though I didn't know any of this, it's the vibe that you give out as a professional. And I think it's your humanity that comes through. And I hope Java junkies are able to take this in because I think in this world of Instagram and Facebook and everyone with their so-called perfect lives and perfect clothes and perfect bodies and all of that. I think it's easy for all of us to get away from what you said, Levi, which is what will really make us happy. Mm -hmm. So, thank you so much for being my web developer. <laughs> and <laughs> sincerely, Levi, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee with me and the Java Junkie community. I just, I think you are a modern day renaissance man, for sure.
1: Well, thanks so much. It's It's been really fun to talk and, you know, I love to share these things that I care about. And uh, it's always great talking to you and, you know, just look forward to keeping our conversation going.